All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We are in the middle of chapter 16, and we will be picking up just a touch of review at 16. So 1616 is where we'll start. But let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are continuing this larger section that has been going on from chapter 15, verse 20, and will continue to go on through chapter 17, verse 24. So we're somewhere in the middle of that. And in chapter 16, picking back up at verse 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. And so there's this reflection on Wealth and the extremely limited value of wealth. It's for this life only at best, and it has a tendency to corrupt and a tendency to do the exact opposite of bless those who have it. Here, and that's a theme that's going to continue, by the way, even in the material for today. But here we see it contrasted with wisdom and understanding. And this isn't just like knowing a lot of historical facts or being really good at math or something like this. The wisdom and understanding is specifically that that comes to us by the word of God. A point that's going to be made clear in an upcoming proverb. This is the wisdom that comes from above, from our Heavenly Father, through his word unto us. Making us wise unto salvation, but then also wise in terms of how to navigate this life, short though it may be, as Christians. So, Proverbs chapter 16 Verse 17, I believe, leads us into the new material. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. The first half, a very common sentiment of many Proverbs, that there are these two paths or two roads. Here, the highway of the upright, the highway of the Christian, turns aside from evil. We'll not walk with evil, but turns aside from evil. These are two different paths. Jesus talks about this, the narrow way and the broad way. The broad way that leads to destruction, the narrow way that leads to life, but these are two disparate ways. The second part of the proverb does introduce a somewhat new idea. Whoever guards his way, so the highway of the upright, here you go along, on the highway of the upright, and you must guard your way, thus preserving your life. So there are going to be temptations, there are going to be assaults, there are going to be people who want you off that path onto the path that they're on. And it is good for us to be wise in this sense that we recognize that ahead of time and have ourselves on guard against such deceits. So this can be easier said than done, of course. But the highway of the upright, we can reflect to, I think it would be good to, in fact, with Christ's return and the making straight of the highway of the Lord, that John the Baptist comes preaching repentance, and that's, uh, so when, when, Ancient kings who are a really big deal were going to visit some place. It might even well be the case that a road was made or a road was straightened. Or, uh, I mean, I think that this is an exaggeration. I think this is a, an example of hyperbole. But that valleys would be filled in and that mountains would be laid low so that the king could have a nice smooth ride on the highway to the place that he likely, his army conquered, and now he's coming to visit. So 
John the Baptist is the forerunner who makes the crooked places plain and the rough places straight. He does these kinds of things as the King, our Lord Jesus, comes. And he leads us on the way, of course, in the book of Acts. The way was really the first proper name for Christianity. And I think that's very helpful in lightening this passage. The highway of the upright is none other than the highway of our Lord as we follow him the way he has gone. A highway that leads through all manner of temptation, thus we must be on guard. A highway that leads through death and unto eternal life. A kind of exodus motif there can be found as well. Proverbs 16, 18, one you'll recognize because it's highly quoted. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Sometimes abbreviated to um, something to the tune of uh, pride goeth before the fall. So, again, I think in connection, why is to see this in light of the guarding previously mentioned? One who is not wise, one who is arrogant, one who doesn't bother to guard his way because, oh, I could never be led astray. That kind of pride leads precisely to destruction. That kind of haughty spirit leads to a fall. You can think of St. Paul. If you stand, take heed lest you fall. There's, and even in our gospel text today, heavy emphasis on humility as an essential aspect of our walk with God and our dwelling with God as sinners. So, here the opposite of humility on display in pride and a haughty spirit. K19 flows right together. It is better to be of a lowly spirit. So, You can contrast that with the previous, a haughty spirit before a fall. So here it is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. There's a beautiful interweaving, a beautiful braiding together of verses 16 and 17 and 18. Okay, self-evident, I think, 19, and one we've covered before, 20 then, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Just a marvelous connection to see in the Old Testament, even if it's, well, maybe especially because it's not some direct dogmatic statement, just this reflection on the part of King Solomon that receiving the word As one who is of lowly spirit, remember we talked about that last week, to believe, to be of lowly spirit and believe that if God says that it's true, even if it doesn't make sense, humble yourself, believe that word of God, and give thought to that word, and you're going to discover good. I love that language too, because it invokes the idea that it might not, the good might not be immediately obvious. There's a discovery of good that takes place, and usually that would denote time. So I know I've certainly found that true as a student of God's Word, that as you give thought to that Word, you continue to discover more and more good. Just never stops giving. So whoever gives thought to the Word, that Word, of course, the Word of the Lord, the Word that comes from the Lord, it's His pure gift. It's a gift that keeps on giving. We discover more and more good. And then from that word, I think you find a connection here. Blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Well, the only way we know who the Lord is or why he's trustworthy is through his word. And so the word itself creates that trust and invites further trust, just as the word itself invites further discovery. So a number of different ways we could go with this, but maybe the most apropos for our day and age would be to point out the the dynamicism here. uh, I don't think that's a word. I think I made it up. But the idea, I'm on a roll. Don't stop me. (laughs) Many more to come. 
Well, the idea that the idea that God has a living, vibrant interaction with His people through His Word. And as he calls us to trust in him through various episodes and seasons of life. It's anything but static and boring. Make sense? So a lot of what ails us, I'll try not to launch off on this whole sermon, but a lot of what ails us in the modern world is we've made everything boring. We've made everything static. We've made everything nihilistic. We've bound ourselves to sort of this overly rationalistic frame and this sort of scientism, which of course betrays itself in all manner of, of way. But nonetheless, we perceive the world and we have a tendency because we swim in this tainted fish pond, even as Christians, uh, we have a tendency to fall prey to these same sorts of nihilistic ideas of like rationalism and scientism and um, it's only what you see and there's nothing more and well read the word on the page did you read it okay then you know it that's all there is there all right trust the lord just becomes really shallow and generic yeah trust the lord unto salvation and you go okay i got that now can i just sit in my recliner for the rest of my life instead of going to church there is a dynamic calling of God through his word and through life experiences where he shapes and forms and leads us on our path. So I simply want to highlight those points from verse 20 where those and many others could likewise be highlighted. Let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts or reflections on what's, what's come before. Okay, one in the back. I was just noticing the screen next to you there that the translation of the second part of verse 20 and his speech is like a scorching fire. Very seems pretty different. Mm, I don't know what we're looking at up there. Yeah. Are there... Am I reading the wrong verse? <laughs> what are the possibilities here? Uh, what are we on? 16, 16? Or what, what are you looking at? Looking at 20, 16, 20. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. The glare's so bad. Let me do this. It's going to make for really bad TV. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Oh, okay. wild okay it corrected itself what 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 did it say generally or roughly do you oh i prefer that that's kind of wild verse 27 a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire okay okay Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Okay, so just, I mean, a surprise but a welcome one and maybe one that shouldn't be a surprise that here in the midst of Proverbs you once again see a very strong doctrine of the word and a very strong doctrine of faith and an invitation to continue to discover good and receive the blessings of God. Okay, 21. The wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness now again these things can be seen in just a general sort of way a general truism that's true for all people but given the context I think the wise of heart here are those who are not only Christians but have been granted this wisdom of heart via the word to be sure that's where all wisdom comes from and thus you know, in having a heart of wisdom, one is called discerning. So there's a connection there between wisdom and discernment. Discernment, it can also, it can be helpful to think of distinction, ability to make a distinction, to discern one thing from another, to distinguish between one thing and another. But maybe more important and more in view is the connection between the wisdom of heart and the sweetness of speech. 
So sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Again, in very general terms, you might say to yourself, and it's true, you can get more flies with honey, right? Just be nice. (laughs) Be nice to the cashier, and she's more likely to get you what you want than if you have a, what do they call it, a a Karen moment, or whatever those, whatever that is. Anyway, um... Don't, uh, yeah, so sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. But the connection that I think somewhat emerges in this section, it's pretty small, but I think it's there. The wisdom of heart and the sweetness of speech, those things being connected. So discernment and persuasiveness are elements of that. And we've meditated before on how speech can be abused, of course, and we're going to look at that again just as we go along, how speech is abused by the wicked. But here is a wise heart and sweetness of speech, persuasiveness, discernment. Okay, 22, good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it. And again, that's the idea of good sense received from the Lord's word is a fountain of life. It it wells up within oneself and bubbles out onto others. Of course, that's communicated through speech. So I think you have that theme being played with here. And then the contrast in this proverb, but the instruction of fools, that is what fools teach, is itself foolish or is itself folly. In this context, the ultimate foolishness is going to be unbelief, but there are all kinds of other foolishnesses whereby God's word is rejected or twisted or some other such thing. So we would aspire toward wisdom of heart, which of course is connected here with discernment, and we would aspire towards sweetness of speech, which is connected with persuasiveness. So those are things that we aspire to have, and those are gifts that come to us from God. Good sense being a fountain of life. Okay, the heart of the wise. Now, that's very similar to what we just saw in 21, the wise of heart. Here, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. So you can see the very deep connection between wise of heart, sweetness of speech, and then the heart of the wise and speech judicious. And, here we see it again, adds persuasiveness to his lips. So a mark of Again, there's a general way in which this is true. A a wise person, just very generically, thinks before he speaks. It's the fool that blurts out exactly. And we all know this because we've all blurted out. When you blurt out, you wish you could take it back, but it's too late. So, yeah, we want to correct that. When we do that, confess, be forgiven, ask that God would grant us the ability to hold our tongues to think before we speak. And in a Christian sense, that's especially true. When we have a wise heart or a heart of of the wise, a heart of wisdom, that's a heart that's ultimately filled with Christ and filled with his salvation. We want to, as much as possible, I know on account of our sinful flesh, it's mission impossible, ultimately, but we want to, as much as is possible, use our speech for the furtherance of our neighbor on his or her way to heaven. That's ultimately what the communication of wisdom is. No, that may be a rebuke. That may be an exhortation. That may be uh, a strong word or an unpleasant word. It may be a very pleasant word. It may be encouragement. It may be giving thanks to someone or lifting someone up. It can take all manner of forms. But the idea is to recognize the connection between wisdom of the heart and the use of one's lips, judicious speech and persuasiveness of the lips. So a connection there. I mean, it may be obvious to us. I hope it is obvious to us on one level. In another sense, it's a very nice meditation and a very nice reminder. Ties in with earlier sections of Proverbs that would 
And just to summarize, tell us to slow down in everything. Don't act impulsively or in haste. Slow down, think, which is different than strategize. (laughs) Think on God and on his word and on what's right and on what the goal is and is it a right goal and then if it is a right goal what will how what will I do to best accomplish it and similar such thought patterns are marks of christian maturity okay Uh, So, again, 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Judicious there, of course, as you can see, like discerning, has this kind of ability to make distinctions. Judicious has within it the ability to make judgments, good or bad, right or wrong, true or false, these kinds of judgments. So to be able to make distinctions and make judgments is a hallmark of wisdom. Isn't it interesting how in our age that's what's being attacked? No distinctions between anyone or anything. No judgments allowed. It's folly. Okay, 24. Gracious words. Now that will color again how we see judicious speech and sweetness of speech and persuasiveness of lips and all these other phrases gracious words we know that grace that we receive in Christ and his gracious word toward us so gracious words are like a honeycomb sweetness to the soul and health to the body obviously this is written in a time in which you can't just go to the candy shop and load up your bags of candy or go to the supermarket and get your 25 pound bag of sugar cane so honey is a rarity and is a treat and is a delicacy and one of the few things you know that have that level of sweetness to it so it's really superlative here gracious words are the best they're the sweetest thing they're the very best dessert you can possibly have gracious words are like a honeycomb Uh, sweetness to the soul and health to the body And that's true for the one speaking them, but it's also true uh, for the one to whom you're speaking. So once more, this idea that your own thoughts, your own words spoken out loud affect you, affect your spirit and your soul, and affect the spirit, the soul of those around you. So these are repetitive and recurring themes in the book of Proverbs. Again, they're kind of obvious if you just pull all the way back and think on it. But as you zoom in here, it's good to reflect on this, specifically as Christians, that the words we speak sort of don't just affect the other person, but affect our own souls. And don't just affect our own souls, but affect other persons and so that's a great deal that latter aspect is really worth reflecting on that in any given day and any given morning you can be one who is putting forward the wisdom and light of God or you can be putting forward foolishness and darkness you can be you know building up even if that means like destroying this to build something better okay you can be overall building up or you can be overall tearing down or maybe even worse you can be completely unconscious of what you're doing and like a blind fool just stumbling about saying whatever you think not caring who it hurts not stopping to discern not being careful with what you say just oh it's me I thought it it must be right That's destructive to your soul and to the souls of the people around you. Okay, so gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We've had this exact proverb before. Why is it here? I don't know. I would speculate and say that I think... The key is it stops us 
to reflect back on the manner of speech, we're not talking about flattering people. We're not talking about persuading people to get our way. We're not talking about just being nice to everybody, which is how it's likely to be interpreted in our own context, as if wisdom is just saying nice things all the time. That would be a way that seems right to a man, but isn't. Anyone with parents knows that if you really love your children, there are, in fact, times where love demands that you raise your voice. Love demands that you say harsh things. Love demands that you make threats. <laughs> so these two are gracious words because they serve the purpose of the betterment of that soul and or those souls and their furtherance into the kingdom of God. So I think that that's maybe why this signpost is reinserted right here at this place. This is a heavenly wisdom, not an earthly wisdom, not a way that seems right to man. Let me pause there, see if you have any reflections, because there's a little suite of uh, Proverbs that are connected here coming up. Everybody's all tired out from battling the hurricane to get here. You all made it. In the sermon, we'll talk about spiritual resumes for just a minute, because that's what the Pharisee does. You know, he shows God his spiritual resume. You can put that on your spiritual resume. Once braved a hurricane to get to church. (laughs) Yes, please. Nope. All right. Let's go on into this little suite of Proverbs then, where there's some interconnection. At 26, a worker's appetite works for him. Isn't that fun? His mouth urges him on. (laughs) It's good to be hungry. It's good to have an appetite. So it's kind of this beauty that, you know, as you have an appetite, that drives you to work. You know, if you didn't have to eat, would you work? Probably not. So the appetite drives one on to work. It ends up working for him. So that need produces productivity, or that need produces an outcome. It's, it's a really fascinating dynamic to just kind of ponder on the sort of algebra that God has written into creation. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. His hunger urges him on effectively. Now, I suppose there's a little depression in this, too, if you read it through the lens of Ecclesiastes. The idea being you are hungry, so you work, so you eat. Why? So you can work. <laughs> it's a, this idea of I, I work to eat. Why do I eat so I can work? Why do I work so I can eat? And so on and so forth. And it's, yeah, I don't know. That's a depressing thought. It's kind of a, it's a spe- I think it's especially common when you're like in your late teens or early 20s where you kind of first get into the quote-unquote workforce and you realize there's just this cycle uh, that you kind of lock into. And it's kind of uncomfortable at first, to be sure. I remember that vividly. So I'm doing all this stuff, so I can do all this stuff, so I can do all this stuff, and that's all I'm doing for the... Yeah, I was greatly comforted, though, when Ecclesiastes points this out as part of the curse and part of the fall. I was like, okay, I'm not the only one who thinks this. Well, I don't know. With it all gloomy outside, maybe we'll take the happy side of this. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. Okay, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire now this is clearly contrasting the sort of wise of heart uh, uh, wise of heart and sweetness of speech that we saw in 21 and all the other language i won't rehearse for you in the following proverbs so a, a stark contrast here to a worthless man as opposed to a wise man and a wise man speaking good he's plotting evil and speaking in a way that is scorching fire. So destroying, I think, is is probably the view here. And I won't belabor it because I already mentioned that previously, that that's the danger of being worthless, not thinking about what you say, saying it. You end up burning all those around you and ultimately burning yourself. 
So you have a worthless man and then you have a dishonest man. A dishonest man spreads strife. Here, I think dishonest can be seen as, I don't know, it's tough to translate, but it could be seen as sort of like not steadfast, not wholesome, not true, um, dramatic, fickle. Uh, those are the kinds of things here in view when you say a dishonest man, a fickle man, a dramatic man. Kind of one of these like sort of chaos figures or Loki figures. A dishonest man spreads strife. And a whisperer separates close friends. So there's gossip. So overarchingly, a meditation on the soul and the mind and speech and either it's used for good or it's used for evil. Okay, a man of violence. It's interesting, you have a worker which seems to be somewhat neutral. I mean, although I don't know, maybe in, maybe in the larger micro context here, that takes on a negative. You have a worthless man, a dishonest man, a man of violence. Maybe he's working for no higher principle than his own mouth. He's not working for the Lord or for the neighbor. He's just working for his own appetite. That's possible. Okay, at any rate, 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. All right, I think that's self-evident, isn't it? Um, the, especially these latter ones, especially 27, 28, and 29, really function again to show, like, back in 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So here you've really got an example of ways to path on the way to death. Worthless, dishonest, violent. Okay, and then 30 um, continues the theme. Whoever winks his eye plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass. So this is, I know it's kind of lost on us. Maybe not the winking, but the winking as a specifically evil thing. I don't, what do we think of as winking? That's kind of like a, sometimes like a flirtatious thing or someone letting you know, like you're letting someone know you're joking or you're saying it not seriously. That's typically, I think, the way winking is used in our context. In that context, winking is sort of denotes this negative thing. Like maybe you're kind of making a deal, but you're winking at your partner, letting him know that, you know, you're gonna stick it to these guys. And same with pursing of the lips. So I don't know I don't know if that really translates culturally for us. Do people who purse their lips bring evil to pass? In your experience? <laughs> I don't know. When I think of pursing of lips, I think of that silly movie, Zoolander. Remember the male models? They're always pursing their lips and strutting around. So I don't know, maybe it's a little lost to us in our context and culture. But I think, I think anyway, the point is true that, you know, you're, you're saying something, but your eyes and your lips are saying something else. Connection between one's heart and one's body, a connection. Yeah, and just this idea of not being, um, not being tricky, being straightforward. I think, yeah, being straightforward, being wholesome, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. A lot of that's in view here. Not being tricky, not being equivocating. You know, like you ask somebody some question and they come up with an answer that totally misleads you, <laughs> but is technically true. <laughs> Isn't that great? Um, so that's the kind of equivocation. It's like God sees and is not mocked. 
Okay, please. You just touched on it, but as we're going through these last four or five, it seems to me that there's something that's hidden within the evil person, and then it's revealed. So it says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, he's plotting. You can't see someone plotting, but you can see the results of his speech. Mm-hmm. He's dishonest inside, and he's whispering, but then once... it. Anyway, maybe that's not yeah. anything, but it yeah. seems like it's hidden first, and then it's revealed as the true nature of the wink or the thought or the plotting or the mm-hmm. intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's good. I think that's good. I, and I think it's good to reflect on this. What your comment really does is sort of opens a vista into these texts, too, where we recognize our sinful nature as it is and as it appears, and then we eschew that, we crucify that, we drown that in baptismal waters, as the small catechism would say. So we're going to recognize these things in ourselves or, or recognize a propensity toward them at minimum. So the plotting of evil or speech that's like scorching fire, spreading strife, whispering gossip, enticing our neighbor or leading them in a way that is not good, um, speaking, you know, but then winking and pursing lips and um, this kind of thing that shows equivocation and deceit. Are you here to murder me? No. And then in their mind, they're thinking, because I'm just going to swing this axe, right? That's the kind of nonsense that, you know, you're here to do some evil thing. No. And there's an equivocation. Clearly, they are. Okay, so we've got a contrast to this wickedness of our flesh and this wickedness of the world. And I think a view here, it's very subtle, but in 31, this idea that God is watching and God is judging. Gray hair is a crown of glory. See, take stock. And don't, uh, maybe don't color your crown of glory. <laughs> so the idea here, old age, living to a ripe old age, living to fullness of life is a gift that God gives. And we've talked about that, the general temporal blessing of long life, of living to gray hair. Some of that, for some of us, that comes earlier. But yeah, take heart. You don't have to color your hair anymore because gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. And obviously you can see the other side, how this is a general proverb, because are all who have gray hair those who have lived or live a righteous life? No, of course not. So you can see you can see all kinds of exceptions here and the other side of the coin. And that's what the proverbs are for. They're meant to be like mentally played with, understood, sort of spiritually chewed on and digested. All right, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. God watches. He judges. He, makes, he himself makes distinctions and judgments. Whoever is slow to anger. Now that phrase, of course, reminiscent of what's said of the Lord, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's one of his principles. Now, slow to anger doesn't mean that he'll never get angry. It means just what it says. Slow to anger and likewise here then whoever is slow to anger so like heavenly father like earthly son so whoever is like his father slow to anger is better than the mighty so to have conquered your own temper or your own wrath is better than to be a mighty person on earth, to be a mighty warrior or conqueror. And then the next one is just like it. And he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. So to rule your own spirit takes more effort and more strength and more knowledge, more fortitude, all of, more courage, all of those things, than to go conquer a city, a fortified city. So here's great encouragement. And I think it's beautiful because it all comes from God's angle. What does God think about the mighty? 
It's just ridiculous. I mean, I don't know. Just go out into your back patio and you're looking at a bunch of lizards. One of the lizards is the mightiest. Do you care at all? <laughs> Who cares? So God doesn't care anything for our quote-unquote mightiness. Um, you know, it's same with like ruling. God doesn't care. Rule comes and goes. He rules over all things. So is somebody who takes a city, they're forgotten. Nobody knows. Maybe the city gets named after them, but then everybody forgets that over time. So a city doesn't mean anything. Being mighty doesn't mean anything. But what does mean something to God is that man who can be slow to anger. He's better than a mighty man. And that man who rules his spirit is better than a man who takes a city. And that also, though, speaks to the difficulty of these things, I think. These are greater feats to accomplish, to be slow to anger, and to rule one's spirit. What does it mean to rule one's spirit? So to know what God says and what God would have you do and what the end goal is and to conform yourself to that even when your spirit is driving you in another direction. That would be a way of describing what it means to rule one's spirit. All right, Proverbs 33. I don't really know what the connection here is, if any except kind of this idea that, again, God is watching and God is discerning and judging and God is in control. That's, in fact, is probably the connection here with 33. My proof text, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's, every decision is from the Lord. There's no such thing as, properly speaking, there's no such thing as luck or chance. Everything happens on account of the Lord. And so another biblical example of this that I brought up in a previous session with the replacement of Judas, they cast lots, the lot fell on Matthias, that's the will of the Lord, and uh, really a good way to um, make difficult decisions if necessary, um, especially if there's like two paths and they're both good, something like that, Uh, cast the lot and recognize the decision as being from the Lord, because it is. So, the Lord is watching. The Lord is in control. There's no chance. There's nothing outside of him or escapes him. So, then it's only wise to live with that knowledge and to speak with that knowledge. Any thoughts? Can you go into what are casting of lots? I've heard of this, not dice. Well, yeah, you've got the the Urim and the Thummim, but nobody knows how they worked. That's the problem, yeah. And you've got all kinds of other, like, casting of lots that don't seem to all be universally the same thing. So it can be draw straws. It can be like a... In fact, the Urim and the Thummim seem to be like a yes-no, at least in some context. That's what it seems to be, like a yes-no deal. You've got to be careful how you answer. Ask your questions, right? No compound questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know, Vicar. Have you heard anything else about, uh, or anybody else heard anything else, um, biblically about the uh, different lots? It's always, oh yeah, rock paper scissors, my kid's favorite. <laughs> best two out of three becomes, best three out of five becomes a parental intervention. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be good to know. That'd, that'd be good to have more specifics. Did you? Yeah. the second part of 32 and he who rules his spirit um, comparing that to the second part of 26 uh, which was uh, his mouth urges him on that might be a different way of reading 26 like uh, mm. not being able to control your mouth I don't know mm-hmm. Yeah, be, being ruled by your base or lower impulses versus ruling your own spirit it's, it's a worthwhile connection to contemplate. It absolutely is. Especially because, you know, I don't know, in hindsight, after kind of marinating in these Proverbs for a little while, it's hard to see a worker's appetite works for him, but his mouth urges him on as really like an extreme positive. 
it, and maybe it makes more sense to lump that in with the other negatives, the worthless man and so on and so forth. In, in which case your point would, I think, be all the more true to rule your spirit versus to be ruled by your appetite. Yeah, very, very much worth pondering. You know, that's, um, that's the way that the church understood our sinful nature as, as passions, as disordered passions, uh, disordered desires. And so the desire itself isn't always wrong, but the disordering of that desire is wrong. So, concrete example. The desire for justice is a good thing. The disordering is to take it in your own hands. <laughs> the desire of a man for a woman is a good thing. It's disordered when it's not your wife. <laughs> okay, so uh, um, the, the passions then and the, the ruling over the passions becomes a, a sort of fundamental way of thinking about what we talk about as sanctification now. So identifying the passions and putting those passions to death or putting them in right order if the passions themselves are of good origin. Yeah. So worthwhile to think about all that, especially because passion, appetite, um, desire, uh, lust, same thing. Um, the sixth commandment, um, which we all know to be about like sexual lust, uh, more classically has to do with all kinds of lust. Uh, gluttony, for example, is often put under the sixth commandment because it's disordered desire, whether they, you know, for something that is not yours or something that is disproportionate to your needs or some other such thing. Yeah. And probably also, though, I mean, I think that this is what Paul's on about with coveting. At, so, the commandments end in our way of ordering with 9 and 10 that both have to do with coveting. And it can seem like they sort of end with a whimper. You know, well, what is this coveting and how do I avoid it? And I don't really have a good sense of what, what's the difference between wanting a new car and coveting a new car. It seems like a fine distinction and this kind of thing. But then Paul comes along and makes the argument part of a bigger context, obviously, but makes the argument that if, if the law had not said thou shalt not covet, he wouldn't have even recognized it with sin or as sin. Now that coveting, that lusting, that desiring, all of a sudden you see that the Ten Commandments don't end with a whimper, but with a bang, that it's so pervasive and so ingrained within us, this dissatisfaction, this wandering of the eye in all its ways. It's so natural to us that even someone like St. Paul says he wouldn't have even recognized it as sin unless God's word said, hey, that's sin. That's disordered. Which then it's just a remarkable way of ending the Ten Commandments and completely apropos of our God. So that the final salvo of the Ten Commandments is this sort of thing where it shows you your sin and your need for a Savior in the ultimate sense. No one's going to ever root out all of their desires, all their disordered desires. What this, where this proverb would connect, and, and again, where the pastoral care of the early church would connect, it would say to recognize these desires and begin to rule over them. Really ties in nicely with our Old Testament text, where you have uh, Cain murdering Abel, and God telling Cain that sin lies crouching at the door and its desire is for you. That is, it desires to consume you and control you and rule over you. And God telling Cain that he, rather than be, have, be ruled over by sin, he needs to strive to rule over sin. So that's the goal of spiritual health. Obviously, easier said than done. But to rule over the passions such that they're not constantly destroying you, destroying your conscience, destroying the people around you. From all this where you get the dogmatic slash pastoral category of ruling sins, sins that have taken you over, they rule. You don't even say no anymore. They just own you. Desire snaps its fingers and you, you know, open your app and you've already bought four things. 
before you even know what happened. You're getting things in the mail that you forget you ordered. You know, that kind of that kind of impulsive consumerism that we all from time to time fall prey to. It's good to recognize that and fight against it. Okay, anything else we want to chat about? We got like three minutes. Okay, on to 17.1, which as you can tell by the text itself in the ESV isn't really a break. Remember the guy who put the chapters and verses on the joke is that he did so from a horse, just kind of putting them wherever they landed. That's certainly true here. Better is a dry morsel (laughs) with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. We've seen this sentiment before. And it's a really important one. I, it's one that sort of comforts the soul because, again, the, the same way that if you're suffering from something terrible, it's comforting when the doctor says, oh, yeah, that's this. <laughs> it's, it's comforting to at least know what it is. And that's true here, too. Um, in domestic life, you sometimes have the experience where, uh, you know, you'd rather have a dry morsel with some peace and quiet than a bunch of feasting with everybody angry at each other. Uh, the feast ceases to be good, ceases to taste good, ceases to be blessed and enjoyable when the company is all at each other's throats. So to have sort of peace and quiet and to strive for that, you know, I suppose you could sort of play with this and say, it is better to have, um, yeah, no, never mind, I don't want to confuse it. I think, I think, I think it makes enough sense as it is. We'd strive toward peace and quiet and recognize that as the highest good. When you've got peace and quiet at your table, that's like, that's great. It's better than a feast. Quiet here, obviously, the opposite of strife. Okay, two, a servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. That's just simply true. It's historically true. We don't have the servant-slave thing going on right now in our context. But such is the power of wisdom that wisdom will overturn the ontology of roles. That a servant who has a lower ontology than a son will in fact nonetheless rule over the son on account of wise dealings. And a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance, that is, a servant will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. It's a beautiful proverb in the context of Christ, where we who are not by ontology, by our very nature and being, sons of the Father, the way Christ is son of the Father, but are instead rather servants, he grants us the wisdom by which we ultimately become inheritors as if we were in fact a brother of our Lord and indeed we are. That's as good a place as any to stop. Stay safe from the hurricane. The Lord be with you.